Good morning, Arbor Church. I'm excited to be here today. My name is Scott. I'm one of the speakers here at Arbor, and I'm thrilled to be back up here speaking with you. I've been enjoying the month of July. I've spent two weeks in the backcountry of the Beartooth of Zorky Wilderness area, just above Yellowstone, hiking and fishing. I've spent four days in the North Cascades. Um, I've been doing some river rafting. I have been enjoying the great outdoors of the Northwest all the way over to Montana. If you haven't gotten into the mountains and the outdoors right now, I encourage you, go do it. Man, God's creation is incredible. So I'm feeling pretty fired up and excited to be here today to continue our series on worship. One of the themes that's been going throughout this that Jake started on the very first, seri- the very first message in the series is lifting our eyes off current circumstances to focus on him. Worship is lifting our eyes off current circumstances to focus on Him. We've looked at worship through the different lenses over the last few weeks, and today I'm going to be looking at worship through the lens of true or false. This idea of what does God see as true worship and what does God see as false worship, and maybe more specifically, what is a true worshiper? Before I do that, I want to share a story, and maybe I've shared this story before. My library is pretty thin with stories about my own personal experiences, but this one takes place when I was a senior in high school and an English class that I had. For many of you, you may not know, but I grew up in a very religious home. We grew up in an independent, Bible-believing, fundamental Baptist church. We went to church on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. I was involved in youth group. I went to summer camps, vacation Bible school. I was on a memory verse drill team. I was on the youth group Bible quiz team. I, I, I liked church. I really did enjoy it. However, in my journey through church, I'll be honest with you, and I don't think I'm alone in this, I, I kind of developed this dual personality where once I stepped into church, I knew how to perform and act a certain way around church life and church people and church events and camp and things like that. And sadly, honestly to say, I also knew how when I wasn't around all that church stuff that I didn't act the same way. I acted differently. I, I, I wasn't always doing the right thing or making the best choices. And I was not alone in this. One of my best friend, Shane, his dad was a pastor. We were kind of like our yin and our yang, and sometimes we'd be pushing each other the right direction, and sometimes we'd be pulling ourselves in the other direction. And I share that because throughout my teenage years of trying to do this duality of church acting and outside of church acting, I was never really ever confronted specifically by an adult about that. It was never called out specifically to me. Maybe a generic sermon made me think about it. And so I felt like I could just manage this both lifestyles. It wasn't until my senior year in an English class that our teacher, and I don't even remember her name, she asked us to write a paper on our philosophy, our purpose of life, and what made us who we were and what we wanted to do in life. And so Shane and I, being good friends, talked about this, and we both wrote our papers, and they both had a very Um, Christian biblical slant to it because we talked about being saved and trusting in God and loving God and trying to find his purpose for our life and that we wanted to serve him and help other people and do the right thing, which was all truth. And we wrote it out and we turned it in. A few days later, she's handing all the papers back out to everybody in class, but did not return the paper to Shane and I. 
Rather, as she was dismissing the class, she told Shane, right, I'd like to talk to both of you after class privately, if you don't mind. We're like, oh, great, what happened here? So the class leaves, and she calls us over to the little office desk area, and she says, look, I want to tell you that this conversation is not about the quality of your writing. You both wrote beautiful papers. I want to let you know that as I read your papers, I was very moved by your faith and your spirituality and what you wrote in there. And she goes, that resonated with me. She goes, however, I want to share something with both of you boys, that what I saw you writing is not what I see on a daily basis the way that you act in school and around me at times. And she goes, my only hope and the only reason I wanted to talk to you is to say, I would hope that someday the truth of what you thought you were writing matches up with the spirit of how you act at school. And they're not the same right now. And I hope that you hear me on that because I think you're both better than that. I'm telling you, that was an eye-awakening moment for me. It, if I thought that I was going to be confronted by anybody, it would have been a youth pastor or my mom or my dad or somebody like that. But it was an English teacher in my senior class that confronted me about this. I share that illustration with you today because I think when we look at worship, we begin to fall into different categories that, oh, it's time to worship, and we enter into this this methodology, this performance of worship, rather than understanding worship is more about a, a personal thing. It's more about a relational thing, a connection with Christ on the inside of us, not what we're doing on the outside. Our goal in this series of worship is to help us become true worshipers of the Father. The word worship appears almost 400 times in different translations of the scripture. It is the reason we were created and why we exist, to live in relational worship with our creator. This worship is not a list of how-to steps to complete. It's not a well-written three-chord worship song that we can sing repeatedly for 10 minutes. It's not a formula that we can just follow that enters us into a state of perfect worship with God. True worship begins and ends in our heart connection to our Father through His Son, guided by the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that Jesus says He came to seek and to save that which was lost. But Jesus didn't only come just to rescue people from hell and to save them. He came to create, to transform, to renew our hearts and minds to be worshipers, true worshipers of Him. Today I'd like to use an encounter that Jesus had with what many of us know, the Samaritan woman at the well, to highlight some key attributes of worship. My hope is that this story that we know very well provides us with some insight into our own personal worship and what we might do to ensure we're engaging, living in authentic, truthful, obedient worship with our Heavenly Father. Let's pray quickly. God, I pray that you'd move me out of the way today. I pray that as we continue to delve into this concept of worship and see what is true or false, that you would give us ears that want to hear, hearts that want to listen, and feet that want to go put into action what we learned today. Move me out of the way, God. May your voice and your teaching come forth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Quick background, woman at the well. Jesus had just been teaching up in Judea, decided to go back down to Galilee. He told his disciples, let's pack up, let's go. And he said, I have to go through Samaria. I won't spend a lot of time on that, but he didn't have to. Most Jews walked around Samaria. So he travels into Samaria. They're getting tired. It's heated. It's the middle of the day. And he stops at a well, a very famous well in that region called Jacob's Well. 
and a lot of historical and between the Samaritan and Jews around that well, he stops there and he sends the disciples into town to find some food that they can eat. And as Jesus is sitting at the well in the shade, a woman appears. And that's where we pick up the story. But I want to know you, I want you to know one main thing before we dig into the story. I want you to remember this main thing. The main thing we will notice about worship is that God makes it personal while we make it about a performance. The main thing I want you to remember about worship is that God makes it personal while we make it about a performance. Let's open up and read starting in verse 7, John chapter 4, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We've, we've talked about this in other sermons in church before, that the, there is a huge racial divide between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds, pardon that word, that's the, what they called them, that they had left some of the religious practice of the Jews. Samaritans didn't believe in the whole Old Testament, all 39. They only believed in five books, and they practiced a different style of worship. The Jews saw themselves as the chosen people, which they were. They had 39 books of the Bible they knew well. They had a very traditional set of way of worshiping God, and it became very ritual, and the two had nothing to do with each other, and they despised each other for years throughout history. So the fact that Jesus, a Jew, is asking a Samaritan woman for water was quite striking. But I want, what I want you to notice here is that the whole interaction is set up by Jesus and his request for a personal thing, a drink of water. Would you please get me a drink of water? It's a personal request that requires a personal response, either ignoring or acknowledging. He automatically enters into a conversation, hopefully on his part. Her reply provides a glimpse of why this request was so strange. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? Translation, what is it you really want? What is it you're looking for? She, this is a woman, as we're going to find out, that's experienced. She's lived life. She probably doesn't trust men very much given her history. And she's like, look, if some strange guy starts talking to me, I know something's up. So there's already this skepticism, this cynicism, this defensiveness of, dude, what's up? What, what's your angle here? What is it you're really asking? Where are we going with this? Jesus replies with a beautiful word picture. He says this. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with from the well because it's deep. Where did you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of himself and his sons and his cattle and took care of them. So there's a lot to unpack in that little part there. But do you see what is happening? Jesus is in essence saying, if you only knew me, knew who I was, then you would be asking me for a drink. He says, if you personally understood who you're talking to right now, it would transform your entire previous experience, knowledge, background that you're acting out of right now. Because you don't know what you don't know. 
He is building a connection between personal worship and performance worship. But she is hesitant and doubtful because this does not fit her learning or background experience. It doesn't fit in her story of what she knows about Messiah God or worship altogether. Have we done this in our view of worship? Have we done this in the way that we view Scripture and church and Christianity and God and relationship with Him? Have we connected worship to our preconceived notions, ideas, or experience? Has worship become something connected to performance? Something we must do or construct in order to feel connected to God. The Father will test your knowledge, experience, learning, and more to prove to you and move to you into the truth of what worship really is. When my English teacher confronted me, I think what she saw was, Scott, there's truth in what you're saying, but in what you're doing and how you're trying to live out that truth is not aligning. And I think what Jesus wants us to know today is that many of you think, or many of us think, and maybe he or me, Scott, thinks, we're engaging in truthful worship, but in his eyes, it's just a false, fake front. And we need to get past that. Jesus answers her in verse 13 and says to her, Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He creates this picture of never needing to come back to the well. And for her, she's like, well, great, I hate coming to this place. Give me this water. She's taking it in the literal sense when Jesus is talking about it in the spiritual sense. And the spiritual sense, that's where he wants the personal connection. In the literal sense, it's only earthly good. In the other sense, it achieves his heavenly purpose. I've told you I'm a big backpacker. I love hiking. I often go way off the grid into the backcountry. One of the number one things you need to remember in the backcountry besides wildlife, is do you have access to water? So we carry water filters with us, which are great. You can put the hose on, drop it in anything of water, pump the water out, it goes through a filter, comes out another hose into your water container, and the water's purified. But we have to continually do that on our hike to make sure we have enough water. And you get some pretty strong forearms working the pump and pulling the water out of whatever water source you have. So I understand this concept of living water, pure water, always flowing, that if you can camp by a brook that has a continual flow of water, you've got a great base camp because you always have something to go to that will build your essence of strength for hiking. And in the spiritual sense, that's what God is saying here. Jesus is offering not a performance worship, but a personal worship, a source of worship centered in relationship with the creator of all things. He is offering an eternal well of water that promises those who drink from it to never thirst again. He knows he's talking to a woman who thirsts for answers. And we'll learn more about that later. To the Samaritan woman, he is saying, you will never have to seek acceptance, purpose, wholeness, love, relationship through performance, i.e. coming to this well day after day after day after day again. Rather, you will find it in the promise of eternal life from God through Jesus eternally. Worship for many people is viewed as rituals, expectations, traditions, and actions 
to be, to be performed for the approval of God. While this has worked for humans at times, it eventually results in a piety or resentment or pride or skepticism, which is not true authentic worship. And most of it happens on Sunday mornings. We get up, we come in, we do our thing, and we leave. And I think for many of us, we've turned the church into a well that we go to that we think we need to do that to have this worshipful relationship with God when he's saying you don't need to do that. He loves church. He wants us to gather together. He wants us to be in the body. He wants us to learn together. But what he's saying is if that is what you've made your worship to be, you're missing out on what it really should be. She responds back to Jesus and says this. Sir, give me this water. That's what I'd say. Heck yeah, give me this water. I don't ever want to be thirsty again. I don't have to come back here. So I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. This is getting awkward. Jesus said to her, you've said correctly, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, I think with a bit of snarkiness, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. This is what I'm trying to tell you about Jesus wants to make worship personal. He's going to come into your life. He's going to poke around and prod and push and pull until he gets you to a place of vulnerability before him to say, okay, there's nothing here to hide. What do you want? And that's when he leans in and says, I want you. I want your heart. I want that spirit inside of you that thrives for something that you can't quite answer that gnawing voice that tells you there's more to life than you understand. That's what I want. I want that. And that's what he's doing here with her. He goes, I don't want action and sacrifice. I want brokenness and realness. Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. He makes it personal. Behavior, sins, hurt, pain, shame, loss. He will poke and prod his way to the heart of the issue that is preventing us or me from entering into true worship with him. Jesus knows her own story and experiences and sins are a barrier from her engaging in true worship. And she is now nervous. How do I know? She's nervous because she uses one of the old, oldest tactics in the book, something I've used very well and I've seen my own children use. They change the subject. They try to go a different direction. And she responds right away. Hey, our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people, notice the language here, you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. If we could break this down in a different way, she's saying this, it's like if you're trying to have a conversation with one of your friends about Jesus or about God, you're trying to share with them, they go, whoa, you Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. I went to church one time and da-da-da-da-da-da, and I heard this guy say this, and we've all run into this. In fact, I've done it myself with God. The moment he starts to get too close on something, I say, you know what? You remember that one time I prayed for this God? You didn't answer. You didn't come through. You didn't do what I asked. Why would I ask you again? She's getting uncomfortable in this personal thing with this person she thinks is a prophet and digging into her vulnerable past and history that carries a lot of burden to her. So she goes, you know what? Forget you. You're a Jew and you don't even like us, and you tell us we don't worship right because you worship there and we worship here, so forget it. 
Notice the shift of the focus in the conversation from personal to argue about religion. She brought up the, appropriate, the apparent hypocrisy of the Jews to say worship could only be done in Jerusalem. Why? Because we are more comfortable with worship being about performance than we are about being personal. Think about how many people get upset about what they call worship service in church or the music or the style of the service or what's being... Rather than talking about personally what God wants us to come together and talk about iron sharpening iron, holding each other accountable so that we can be true, authentic worshipers in Christ. Rather than doing worship, we run to our places of worship rather than the person of worship. Rather than a confronting and getting in a relationship with God, we run to the places of worship rather than the persons of worship. And we know this because Jesus says this to her in verse 21. He says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The idea of church being the one time and place for worship is as old as mankind. The Jews had a tabernacle in the wilderness. David built or had Solomon build a temple. Pagans had temples. All around the world, people of different religions take meccas to holy cities or locations to encounter their spiritual existence of a God. We as Christians take, take trips to Jerusalem or Israel to have an experience of the scriptures. This idea of a place being holy and sacred is where we have worship is antiquated, but it's been around forever. And what Jesus is saying is, it is no longer a place, it is a person, me, the Messiah, which you don't know yet. See, the Samaritans and Jews are not much different than us. They thought location mattered. They thought God needed a place that they could go confront him and meet him and encounter him. And he's saying, no, I want to meet you where you are, wherever you are, walking along the road, sitting by the well, handing out taxes, whatever it is. I want to meet you and say to you, follow me. So far in this conversation, we've learned three things that worship is not. The conversation is going to shift here a little bit now where Jesus begins to introduce what true worship is, but so far I want to make sure you've caught what he has said that worship is not, that he's kind of breaking down this for her. So far we have learned that um, false worship is rooted in performance. False worship is rooted in performance. It's what, what can I do? What can I create to have this experience with God? What do I need to do? False worship is rooted in background, our own experiences, our own knowledge, our own learning, our own culture, our own teachings that we've grown up with. Let me tell you, I, what I love about the church I grew up in, it gave me a strong background in the Bible and the stories in the Bible and the characters and where things were. But what it also did is it gave me a very warped view of God, a legalistic view of how he operated, like the grand wizard on a chair just waiting for me to mess up. And I'm telling you, that served as a barrier for me and a resentment for me for years until I rethought through what Scripture was saying about the character of Jesus and God and who they are. So don't let false worship, don't let your worship be so rooted in your traditions and backgrounds and, and rituals that you're forgetting the spirit of what God wants to do. The last thing that God has been pointing out here is that false worship is rooted in a place that we put our anchors in a sacred space, all right, out of truth and wondering, but it's not just that. It's more than a place. It's more than a performance. It's more than our backgrounds. 
It's a personal connection. And he's about to take us there. So now we jump to verses 22 through 26. Jesus says, and this is just, this, is, this could be a whole sermon in itself right now. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, as in Jesus, the Messiah, coming through the Jews. Not the Jewish religion and traditions, but that Jesus came through the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Catch that. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and when that one comes, he will declare us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, I who speak to you, am he. I can't emphasize the depth and power of this passage, this conversation right here. The, 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 the shift, the paradigm shift that did in her mind, that it did for culture and humanity afterwards. True worshipers have the balance of spirit and truth, not just one or not just the other. And we're going to begin looking at that. What is a true worshiper that says, the Father seeks true worshipers who, all right, worship the Father in spirit and truth. Okay, so what does it mean to worship in spirit and to worship in truth? What do those mean? And then what does that look like to a lost world? Because that's what Jesus is trying to show us here and show the Samaritan woman. See, the Samaritan woman was worshiping in spirit, but not truth. Let's start there. The the Samaritans made up some religious things that were an offshoot of Judaism. They only believed in five books of the Old Testament, not the rest of Scripture. All right? They, they, they didn't necessarily believe that the Messiah would come just through the Jewish lineage. They had some different rituals on the way they worshipped, but boy, were they spirited. They were, they were enthusiastic. They were spirited in their worship, but they had no truth. Emotional, energetic, genuine, sincere, but they didn't have the whole truth. The Jews, on the other hand, who believed in all 39 books of the Old Testament and worshiped in the full truth, all right, their worship had become cold, routine, lifeless, and even legalistic. It it put people into a box. It, It made worship a set of rules and regulations that only people like the Pharisees and Sadducees and priests could live up to. Jesus himself said this about the Jewish people in Isaiah. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me. Their worship for me is based merely on human rules they have been taught. So here you have two comparisons of spirit. Samaritans got all the spirit and got that right on, but not all the truth. Jews had all the truth, but had wrung all the spirit and joy and personhood out of it. And what Jesus is saying is, you both have been fighting thinking you have the right answers, and neither of you do, because I need both spirit and truth. Um, 
I'm going to give an example here. I wrote in my notes, it's called Hands Up, Eyes Closed, and Sway. <laughs> I grew up in a very legalistic church, I told you that. My friend Shane, his dad had started a church called the Living Bible Church. I believe that's what it was called, their family Bible church. And I started going to that church with him at times, and they were much more charismatic, Protestant. And one of the things I thought was really awkward and weird at first was when they started worship, it was like this automatic response of people would raise their hands, eyes would get closed, and they'd start swaying to the music with your two hands or one hand or one hand out here or like this. And I'm not mocking. I'm just saying for a guy coming from church where everybody sat like this all the time, it was eye-opening. It was awkward. It was weird. So over time, I thought, I'll try this. I'll get into this. I began doing that. But here's what I found. As genuine as that was for some people, for me, it became another layer of performance. And I share that with you because I went from all this rigid legalistic truth to try to embrace the spirit of, you know, the, the spirit of my, you know, Protestant church friend that were charismatic Pentecostal, a little bit more out there. And I tried to embrace that and I left one behind to grab the other. And even in this, when I grabbed the other and I felt released, I finally felt this joy in Christ I never felt before, I personally, not the church I was in, left behind some truth and kind of said, well, screw that stuff over there. I'm only doing this. It took me years to figure out that it's both that God searches for. That spirit, that inner thing inside of you that just, he wants that just to be right with him, centered in his truth. So what does it mean to worship in spirit? When Jesus said true worshipers worship in spirit, he wasn't referring to the Holy Spirit. Rather, he was referring to the human spirit. If he meant the Holy Spirit, he would in the Greek put the article the in front of it. He says worships in the spirit, but he didn't. He says worships in spirit, the essence. The spirit in the Greek meant the, the inner part, the core, the essence of who you are as a human. We hear that in all sorts of religious talk and mysticism, the inner man, the inner part. That's what he's talking about the spirit in here. That's what he wants. He wants to reside in there and guide that and lead it and have it be all about him. So how do we do this? How do we worship in spirit? First, we must accept Jesus Christ as our savior. You cannot fully worship Jesus and God the Father in spirit if you haven't accepted him into your life. And that's what he said to the woman. He says, I am he, I am the Messiah. You need me to worship God the Father. And so if we don't first come to acknowledgement that Jesus is our Savior and enter into relationship with him, we'll never get to true worship. We'll never be a true worshiper. And I plead with you, those that may be listening today, if you've been standing at the door and wondering, do I take this step? Do I really enter? What's this whole relation? I can be a good person. I can do all these things. I can perform, and that's good enough for God. He says, as Jesus says in Ephesians through Paul, all right, but by grace are you saved. All right? A gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. There is nothing we can do in our performance, no matter how genuine our worship is, if it's not centered in salvation of Jesus, it's emptiness. It's vanity. First step to be a true worshiper in spirit is to accept Jesus as our Savior. The second thing, we need to come before God in anticipation, expectation, and readiness to receive whatever he has for us. The Jews had lost that. They came in in a ritual and a routine. They did this. <laughs> I'm going back to my church again, man. There's people that had the right pew. 
I remember one time a bunch of us teenagers decided to really mess with some people in church and we all went and sat down in this one pew that we knew this one family sat in all the time. This old grandma and grandpa, their sons and daughters, their grandkids, and we just took up the whole pew and boy, you would have thought that the carpets were the wrong color in church that day. They were upset. They're like, um, this is our pew. And I remember going, um, there's, I don't see a name on it. I'm not joking. He goes, um, actually, there is a little plaque on the side. And I looked down, and sure enough, there is his family name right on the pew, right there. I'm like, you bought a pew in church? You can do that? Why didn't we buy a pew? But his name was on the pew, right there. And so we all had to get up and move, like, like 12 of us, you know, junior hires, and we had to go sit somewhere else. But we had a good laugh out of it. I share that with you because, man, I'm telling you, that service became a routine, it became a ritual, it became a religion, not a relationship. We need to show up prepared to encounter God and what he has to show us. And I'm telling you, I've missed it in my own life at times. There's been times I've showed up to preach a sermon not fully prepared, and I didn't think, yeah, or I'll just get the sermon, I'll check it in. Not this one. I really prepared this one. I'm ready to good to go. But there's times I'm like, I'll just mail it in. And afterwards, God's like, what are you doing? You didn't even expect anything to happen after that. I've gone to him in prayer and said my routine prayers and da 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 and didn't think about it. I've gone to my devotions, read the daily devotional, da 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 oh, I had my devotions today, move on. Didn't meditate, didn't think on it for the day, didn't try to make it personal because it's become a performance. That needs to be that personal connection with our creator. We may be able, in fact, I don't say way, we are able to worship God lacking perfection but we cannot worship God lacking spirit. We may be able to worship God. In fact, we can worship God lacking perfection because none of us are perfect, but we can't truly worship God lacking spirit, essence in here. So how do we worship in truth then? We found out spirit is about this essence, the inner part, accepting Jesus, letting him reside here, letting him guide your actions and thoughts and motives, not depending on yourself. So what do we worship in truth? It means our worship must be based on the truth that God has revealed to us. Where has he revealed that? The scripture, the Bibles. We must know what his word says. In verse 22, Jesus commented to the Samaritan when he says, you worship what you do not know. For years I thought I knew the scripture but I didn't know it. Oh, I had verses memorized, but I didn't know it. I didn't understand it. There's a difference between memorizing something and regurgitating something and knowing something and let it seep into you and change who you are. Do we really know the truth of the scripture or do we know our perspective, our interpretation, what we want the scriptures to say to us? Or have we gone to God and say, God, reveal to me what you're saying in this passage. In other words, you may be very spirited in your worship, you may be very engaged and sincere, but if it's not rooted in the truth and the knowledge of the scripture, then it's vanity. Rather, is it rooted in your own personal experience and emotions? The lack of knowledge prevents us from being a true worshiper, just as the lack of spirit, all right, on the part of Jews made their worship empty. 
Jesus concludes by saying a statement that salvation comes through the Jews, the Messiah. And she makes a revelation and says, yes, I know the Messiah is coming. But then he says something profound, all right? I am he. Through Jesus is the passageway to encounter, worship, and relationship with God the Father. And we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide us. Jesus does not want false worshipers. God the Father does not want false worshipers. Aaron in the Old Testament is a great example. Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. While he was gone, the Jews got distraught and bored. They thought he died. He's not coming back. Aaron, here's all our gold bracelets and necklaces. Melt them down and make us something to worship. Aaron melted them down, chose to make a calf. I don't know why a calf. Maybe they all wanted meat that day. I don't know. And so he built this calf, and there put it up, and all the Jews came around. They started dancing. They started worshiping, singing, and they were very spirited about worshiping a calf. Moses came down, saw that, broke the commandments, and it was not good after that. God had a lot to say. Aaron was never the leader he was before again. I share that story because I want you to know that I think sometimes we have blindly entered into our worship practices without stopping to think, why is it I'm worshiping? What is it I'm worshiping? What's my intent? And am I really a true worshiper? Is it really centered in, the, in my spirit? And is it coming from truth? And we look at that story of the, you know, the Jews and the desert and the calf, and we're like, how, how silly and stupid are they? I look at that story and I think, may I not be that person right now? And if I am, Lord, let me know because I want to be a true worshiper. In order to worship in truth and spirit, we must worship the Father. And when I say the Father, I mean the one true God. Today in our world, there's a lot of interpretations for God. And I've seen a lot of good Christian churches gone down this pathway of, he's a spirit, he's an essence, he's part of you, there's a goodness in you that is God. No, there's nothing good in me that is God. The only thing good in me is the Holy Spirit, a gift from God, because Jesus died for me. When he says true worshipers, the Father, we worship the Father, the Creator, the one and only God that created this world, created me and everything around it. Reminds me of a story of someone that challenged God about his, you know, the creation of the world, the scientist who had studied everything about science and cre- you know, the, the evolution and the, the, the world and how things came to be and genetics and biology. He had it all figured out. He stood next to God one day and said, you know what? Mankind has come so far that we really don't need you, God. We can create life on our own now. We can put DNA together, gen- genetics together. We can do it all on our own. God looked at him and goes, really? You want to have a contest? Scientist goes, yeah, sure. What? He goes, let's create something. He goes, great, let's do it. And God reaches down and grabs some dirt, picks the dirt up, folds or molds around a little bit, breathes into it, and this beautiful, gorgeous butterfly that the scientist had never seen before flies off. Scientist nods his head. He goes, okay. Reaches down to grab some dirt, and God goes, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Scientist goes, what? I'm just getting some dirt. He goes, go get your own dirt. Go make your own dirt. I share that because I think sometimes we go to God and we say, you know what, God, I got it figured out. And we go down to pick up what we think is our own dirt to solve our problems and worship and do our own things. And we realize that we really are nothing without God the Father. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for us. Yes, the Holy Spirit resides in us to guide us and counsel us. But it was God the Father that sent his son as a sacrifice 
that sent the Holy Spirit to reside in us, that created us, that knelt by a muddy river and shaped us out of mud and breathed life to us. It's God the Father. And when Jesus says the Father is looking for true worshipers in truth and spirit, that's who we're going to. It's a person. It's a personal connection, not a performance. And God is standing here today telling you, I want you to be a true worshiper. You know what the Samaritan woman's response was when it finally clicked in her, when everything fell into place? She was joyous. She stood up and ran back into the sea and said, I have to tell everybody about this. And that inner joy was just springing forth like a water fountain out of her. And she ran into town and grabbed as many people as she could. And they met Jesus and the disciples walking back into town. And they stayed there several days. I hope that we haven't lost that essence of worship. I'm going to close with a song, and I'm not going to sing it. Jake's the singer. I know Jake sang it. He actually sang a song in the sermon a few weeks ago. I, I will not pain you with me singing, all right? But uh, there's a song we sang at summer camp growing up. It's called Spring Up, Oh Well. Uh, we probably sang it at vacation Bible school and everything else, but it goes like this. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison's door, sets the captives free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up, oh well, within my soul. Spring up, oh well, and make me whole in you, Christ. Spring up, oh well, and give to me that life abundantly. I share that song with you today because if you have gone to the well and had an encounter with Jesus, if you've accepted him into your life and you are a believer, you now need to lean into worshiping in truth and spirit so that when you go places, the essence, the river of life, the fountain of life that is Christ comes out of you, exudes out of you wherever you are, no matter the circumstance because it's about your relationship and your essence in him. If you haven't gone to that well and met Jesus, I ask you today to do that. There's no bigger decision than giving your life to Jesus and God our Father. Because without it, you can never be a true worshiper. So for those of you that have not entered in a relationship with Jesus, I ask you today, take that step. There's no magic words. You talk to him however you can. You find someone to help you. For those of you who have been in a relationship with Jesus and have been a believer, but your worship seems scattered, dead, lifeless, or maybe too spirited, but you don't know the truth of what you're doing, it's time to go back to him and say, I want to make this about you and me, and what are you trying to tell me? We don't just want worship. We want worship in truth and spirit that is for the Father. Outside of that, there is no other worship. It's just a vanity and a chasing after our own desires and dreams. Let's pray.